Welcome everybody to Crosstown Conversations where we allow culture, the environment, a little bit of politics, but mostly uh, our economy take center stage. Today, we're going to focus on the solstice and dance and um, getting paid for our artwork. So we have um, John Barnes, who's one of my um, uh, favorite uh, artists in town. He does a, a really interesting range of work. Um, in a lot of it uh, using wood, some of it abstract, some of it figurative. Um, and he is a, is, has a very interesting uh, strategy for dealing with the issue that is always so important for artists, and that is actually um, selling what they make. This is uh, an issue for every artist, and, and there are those who um, tackle it and um, really figure it out, and, and others who, who struggle with it. And so I really wanted to bring um, John into the conversation today because we have our Give Art campaign on right now, which uh, the Creative Alliance of New Orleans does for the purpose of really trying to encourage people to buy art for the holidays instead of manufactured goods uh, that are caught on a ship somewhere off the coast of California or the East Coast or wherever. And so um, uh, we're, we're encouraging people to uh, buy the art of our working artists in New Orleans, including John Barnes. Um, so John, uh, again, I think you uh, among the artists I know are one of those who really does work at the business side, the selling side uh, of, of what you do. And um, not that everybody doesn't try, but um, you have really uh, been intentionally working working at it and, and coming up with some very deliberate uh, approaches to uh, getting your work out to the world and to other people. So tell me a little bit about. Well, uh, when I initially moved to the city, I sought a commercial gallery in the uh, Julia Street Arts District. And uh, for about 11 years, I, I, I worked as a as an artist with Lemieux Galleries. So they, they represented me for many years and still off and on, you know, uh, you, you know, we're not official in writing, but still off and on, they, they will represent me. But uh, uh, that was a interesting experience and I learned a lot. And uh, it was interesting because I, I always felt like uh, there were certain audiences I, I, I would miss with galleries. And so uh, after I stepped away from there, I kind of, uh, I just I just got involved with a lot of group exhibitions and the group exhibitions were in places that I, I never exhibited before while in the city. And then I, then I uh, took a course on social media back in 2015 and uh, I, I started a Instagram page. And bit by bit, I, I started to, to look at the medium and, and, and try to figure out what I thought was the best strategy. So uh, uh, the beautiful thing about you know, platforms like Instagram and most social media platforms is that they have, they have diagnostics. The diagnostics help you isolate who is most likely to follow your work. And so once you find that population, that's who you start marketing towards. But at first I just had to follow lots of different entities, mostly art related or, or museum related. 
And then I, I started refining my, my hashtags to, to reach out to people, you know, that I thought might uh, be drawn to those hashtags to as a as a way to reference my work. So for example, uh, give, me, give me an example on that, just so uh, people are listening to I want I, I assume other artists are going to hear this interview because I think uh, they do follow this uh, program. So um, give me some a, a, an example of some of the hashtags that you found to be productive for you. Okay, well, there's black artists, there's a uh, contemporary artist, New Orleans, there's woodworker, there's a uh, 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 wood sculpture, there's assemblage sculpture, there's, you know, you start off with what you do, and uh, it finds its way into the circles that have the people you want to influence and reach, but you have to be very consistent with it. So uh, I would often generate bodies of work exclusively for the Instagram platform because uh, of the sizing and shape of the window and the way I wanted it to appear on people's phones. So I started making these small structures, uh, these small uh, wood assemblages called eye candy. And uh, they were designed essentially to, to draw people in uh, because my work has a tendency to be a little complicated and hard to get. I wanted to make some stuff that was kind of not necessarily simplistic, but more about my technique, more technical works that would look really good on a platform that could help me build an audience. And it kind of took off, you know, I, I would launch, I, I've made about a dozen objects and I would launch them every two or three days. And after the fifth object that I launched, I started to notice a pattern. And so a friend of mine told me to look at the diagnostics. And then I said, okay, oh, now this shows me my ideal best time to publish this you know, the best days of the week based on my traffic and based on who was following me. And so from there, you know, I learned. And then uh, I did a Joan Mitchell residency and I met almost everybody there was big in the social media, thousands and thousands of followings. And it's almost like you could, you could, you could, you could gauge what your, uh, you know, what, what your, your sales potential would be per couple of hundred people that follow you. So, you know, you see these artists with 3,000, 5,000, 6,000 followers, there's a nice bit of business there, you know? So, uh, and there are quite a few artists who do quite how many, well. Say how many people per a thousand? What's that? What did you say? What were your, what was your numbers that you put out there? Well, you know, if somebody has like three of three to 6,000 followers, there could be a great deal of support and potential clients in that number if they've tailored and uh, curated their their uh, list of followers. Meaning, you know, they they you know people follow them, they follow them back, they maintain them if if they turn out to be someone who is targeted in there. It's, it's such a thing as targeted social media, you know, where it's not necessarily so much about catching up with old friends, but it's about building connections with uh, different organizations and institutions. So I started getting, most of the shows I've gotten since 2015 have been initiated through interactions online, you know, and- uh, Not even just sales, but shows. Oh, sales and shows, sales and shows. So it's like, uh, it, it's interesting. Uh, it, it, it spread, you get to see the spread of where your support is coming from. Uh, of course, most of my support is going to be based in New Orleans over like 50%, but then it breaks off to, 
you know, California, Florida, New York, uh, different other other parts of the world, and you get to see the percentages. Uh, and you know, when when I did the residency in 2019, I met several artists who get their client base comes exclusively from from social media, and so that you know gave me confirmation that it was possible. So I just started pushing harder in that direction. So, uh, but you know, then there's so many tools there. I'm not the most savvy person with it, so I, I do struggle with. Uh, you know, maintaining a good flow of postings. I also struggle with utilizing the full spectrum of tools. But, you know, this these things have to be, you know, part of how you operate if you're going to be, you know, promoting and marketing yourself. These are some of the things that are available. Of course, there's Twitter and things of that nature, you know, that are all interlinked. Facebook, some people use Facebook more uh yeah I, I am uh in the process of getting some camera equipment because uh i, I do want to start making a, a, a more higher quality process videos of things i'm doing and start posting those on my blog page so i have to evolve past my little samsung camera phone and you know get a real camera because you know the the, the more you invest into that image in that small little window on your screen you know the more options you create for yourself, you know, because uh, this is totally a visual experience. And, and uh, you know, you look at some of the, the, the more high profile artists and it's just like in a static world, you know, where you're looking at, in, in the old world, we would look at slides and, and, and JPEGs, you know, now people wanna see a, you know, some, some motion video footage, you know, that's, that's been edited and, looks really good on the phone or whatever platform you're going to play it from and uh that's that's part of the game as well so does that mean you're on um tiktok i have a tiktok account but uh i haven't haven't launched anything on it yet i figured i better get on tiktok as well because you know these things they're they're moving they're moving really fast but in terms of uh you know artists in general i think uh uh, a big challenge for New Orleans, it, it has always been a challenge. I've been here 23 years and each each meeting I go to at art centers and, and uh, collectives of artists and art educators is how we can seed a more fruitful uh, ecosystem around the arts, you know, ecosystem where everybody isn't going to be exhibiting, but there's enough additional things that support the mission of the arts, you know, that pay money that aren't volunteer based and they offer a, a wage that would allow someone to live in the city, you know, because uh, the cost of living is really, really getting high. When I moved to New Orleans, it's very interesting. The median uh, rent was $450. When I moved here back in uh, 1999, it was $450. That was the the average rent people were paying. And then you just look at where we are today. So back then it was pretty easy to show up, you know, hey, I'm an artist. I'm just gonna go from 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 job, from 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 uh sell to sell, hustle to hustle. You can kind of live that way. And um, you, you know, but nowadays you need a plan because uh, you know, the cost of living are is is drastically different and it's 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 accelerating at a more rapid pace. And, uh, you know, this is a subject that's dear to me because uh, 
you know, throughout my academic training, there weren't a lot of moments where the professors were willing to really sit down and talk about money. Uh, it was great because at Southern, uh, you know, Martin Payton, uh, you know, showed me how to make a contract. You know, if you're going to engage in a contract with someone, you know, if you're going to engage in a, in, in, in a commission, you know, how to go about it. And uh, that, that was a great lesson to learn. That wasn't on a curriculum. That was just a side conversation. I kept bugging him. He said, okay, this is how you do it, you know? And, uh, well, you know, Alonzo taught me a, a great deal about marketing and promotions and, uh, you know, how to, how to build networks of support and things of that nature. So there's a lot of things you have to, you know, equip yourself with if, if your ultimate goal is to, you know, not only be an active artist, but to, you know, be in a position to add to that ecosystem, you know, around the arts. So, you know, if an artist needs any sort of help that they're willing to pay money for, you know, that, that, that seeds the ecosystem, which will, you know, support more artists. And then that will bring greater artists to the city, or that will, you know, uh, encourage greater artists who are from the city, who are either going to leave or take on a different type of a uh, career route that might encourage them to focus more on it because uh you know the infrastructure the, the ecosystem as vast as it has grown it, it still isn't keeping pace with inflation let's i i, I want to understand um a, a, a little bit better what you're meaning and talking about with the ecosystem um i need you to to um um mine that uh, okay. A little well, bit, that, a little bit more. Uh, when I speak of the ecosystem, I'm talking about uh, the the tentacles of support that exist around the arts community. Like what what is available for an artist to do that makes money other than selling art. So uh, working at an art center, working at a community center, teaching. These are the classic uh, three pillars in terms of the ecosystem that I've noticed in New Orleans. You know, everybody, you know, is working with one of these organizations that's usually linked to teaching in some capacity, if not directly teaching in the school system, you know, or uh, doing some sort of work in a community center or art center, you know, uh, or, or at a museum, you know, uh, when, I, when I started, back at Dillard, when I started Dillard back in uh, 1999, I noticed there were uh, quite a few students from the from the bigger private schools, you know, who were doing gallery guard work at the Contemporary Arts Center and, you know, different places like that. I was like, oh, wow, you know, it looks like, you know, somebody has worked out some sort of uh, arrangement, you know, for these students, because they all seem like they would come from one or two schools. And so I was like, wow, you know, this is that's actually part of the infrastructure. I mean, students, if you want people who are in school to continue, you know, they have to be you have to, you know, feed them something throughout this experience. And you have to show them, uh, you know, that there's opportunities to grow, because another aspect of the ecosystem is, you know, the, the mainstays, your, your, your art instructors, art professors your uh, grant writers, your art center directors, you know, these people keep their jobs until they retire. So it's not like they're willing to recycle those positions every couple of years. So, you know, new up and coming people can get them. 
And, uh, you know, you know, so it creates this imbalance and it, you know, but at that, I understand this is how the arts tends to be. There tends to be more artists and opportunities, you know, as a way of sifting through the muck. But we, you know, we, we have to, if we have to look at what we do with, with some of the, the uh, basic principles that other disciplines operate with. So and, how, how would you, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt your sentence. No, go ahead, go ahead. So, so how would you characterize the New Orleans market, uh, let's say, um, past, present, future? So what is the trend? And um, I, I mean, I feel uh, concerned always that there still isn't a really um, thorough understanding nationally of our market. So there's a tendency to think of New Orleans as uh, you know, exotic, sexy, linked to the past, all those things that we know um, are, are characteristic of, of our very special culture here. Uh, and, and less aware of the uh, innovative, contemporary, cutting edge work being done here. Uh, am I wrong about that, number one? And two, uh, I, I worry about losing people. So just as you said, those positions that are available for people in the arts, the grant writers, the arts center directors, the, the people like me working with nonprofits. Um, there's not a whole lot of, there's not a huge job market uh, in New Orleans for people to move through positions from start positions to higher level positions. So I worry about losing people. And every once in a while, you know, I do catch someone who um, ha has moved on, uh, plenty of people who've moved on. Um, how would you um, describe what you feel is 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 trending in, as far as people being involved in in making art here versus leaving here? Well, you you know you do have uh, the general expectation of tourists, right? You know this this plays into it because uh, the artists who cater to the tourists or the visitors to the city, they are able to you know, open and run very predictable businesses, you know, with that they can scale, they have scalable businesses because they're, they're, they're supporting the tourist structure. And so when people come to New Orleans, they're looking for something that's going to be related to or, 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 or helps them memorialize their experiences on the tourist level. So that particular profile or category of artists who's doing quite well and like I said, most of the artists I know that cater to that audience, they, they have scalable businesses and they're able to provide job opportunities, you know, so they're definitely able to contribute to that ecosystem. Then you have the artist, the other category, which is the, you know, international, national, contemporary artist type category, the, the, the academic type of category where one could say that that particular audience is a lot more finicky, you know, because uh, that brand of work, in my opinion, uh, you know, they can get that in at Art Basel as well. And that type of work tends to be a little bit, if not a lot more expensive, you know, because uh, those artists publish at a, at a different rate than the uh, tourist artists. And, you know, uh, they, they might have established themselves in other cities. So, you know, I often wonder, 
you know, of somebody who can't afford, you know, contemporary art, if they get more out of it from their, you know, local support, they say, hey, I got this at Art Basel, or hey, I got this, I got this at the San Francisco Art Fair, or oh, I got this, I got this at the, uh, at the Focus Convention, you, you know what I mean? Uh, if, you know, if, if, if there's more uh, status in their opinions, if they get it outside of the region, I often wonder about that, because you know, our contemporary art community is quite vast, is quite diverse, and the support levels, it ebbs and flows. It, it really depends. It, it, really, the most, the ones who get the most support are connected to the gallery brokers and dealers that move work, you know, in these larger markets as well. You know, if you look at the, the, the galleries that represent them or the individuals that represent them they're connected to multiple markets so uh it's it's it's, it's I, I i so i guess just to sum it up i would say that there's more shine to the people who are based in the city who can afford the art you know to get it from these exotic markets than to get it locally um how would you say your work has evolved uh, over the years, and in in what way? How would you describe the process of the evolution and the development of your work, both in terms of the marketplace, but also just independently, uh, as a result of your experiencing and thinking about your work? Well, I'm I'm moving towards a more accessible type of work. Uh, I'm I'm definitely seeing the 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 downfalls of over, over over politicizing what you do, uh, in part because uh, you change over time as a as a as a maker. Your opinions change over time, and um, you know as you know, I just turned fifty uh, on the second of December. So I definitely uh, thank you, thank you. I'm definitely interested in reaching more of of my people in the city, you know, and and and, and in general. So. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm finding myself more open to uh, ideas that may be, may be influenced by uh, community issues, you know what I mean? Uh, so, uh, you know, I, I, and, and also I think my work is a lot more refined than it was when I initially started. Uh, I'm, 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 I've always been, you know, looking for ways to refine things and still, you know, have a sort of roughness you know, a, a sort of a, a texture to the edge, but in in a, in a cleaner, more uh, more succinct manner. Um, I, I think the ideas behind the work are becoming more universal. I think that's another benefit of age. You know, uh, you you start thinking about how you can reach more people with uh, you know whatever message it is you're promoting, and uh, I, I definitely feel I'm a lot more organized and professional with what I do. So, you know, those, those are some things that have evolved over time. How do you see, um, going back to the question about the market and New Orleans, how do you see the city's um, um, art uh, scene, market, and the creative uh, in general, not just visual arts, but the entire cultural marketplace um, evolving uh, going forward. What's what's your prediction for how you see things? Happening? And uh, and I should have asked you how the pandemic affected you, but I don't know. I feel like um, 
we all know that that was there was a diminution of of uh, everything during that time, and we're all uh, trying to figure out how to climb back out of it. So I'm not quite as curious about that anymore as I am about um, the future. But but there may have you may have done a pivot, although for those who actually did some kind of pivot during um, pandemic, then it's it's a kind of a big that it is a big thing. Well, I, I, would, I would hope everybody uh, took advantage of uh, the ability to hit the pause button and uh, do some reevaluation and some reprior and reprioritize and redirect, you know, uh, so that that's something that I would hope most people would do, regardless of uh, their, you know, profession. But uh, well, uh, but oh, in terms of where this where the culture is going, uh, you know, I personally think that New Orleans is becoming more and more each day a more international destination and i think uh you know the 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 i think the historical aspects of the city will eventually be put under glass uh right now that the history is like more active and present but i think it will eventually be encapsulated you know to be studied as you know, the, the new thing happens because we have technology. And so uh, you're going to have less of a, of a uh, local predominance of ideas, uh, you know, because you have the structures, you have, um, you know, um, the active culture bearers, but, you know, I think it's gonna be difficult for the city to resist the, uh, the pull to the mainstream and uh, you know it's going to be more financially motivated. So uh, I think you're going to see some some big stars emerge, you know, nationally out of the city more than you've seen before in the visual arts. And uh, you know they will they will be part of that special tier of artists that's put under the glass with the history. Mm. Oh, that's really interesting. Do you worry about that? Does that concern you that the um, the culture that is unique to New Orleans, because it has survived in the present tense so much more than in many other places, um, does that concern you at all? Well, I mean, you know, uh, change is the most is the only constant in nature, and uh, you know that was one just that quaintness that that innocence was something that drew me to the city, you know, but it, it's, it's, it's been compromised. You know, I think before Katrina, I watched the city peak, you know, in terms of its uniqueness, it, it was like really incredible. If you look back, you know, uh, 17 or 18 years, you know, uh, just, just at the, the level of uh, cultural expression that seemed to happen everywhere, it's, it's just not the same anymore. And it's not because of Katrina, it's, it's because we have all of these different avenues uh, in the virtual space. And I think you're gonna see a lot of uh, the younger artists, generation of artists taking advantage fully of these virtual options. Uh, you're gonna see a lot of them minting NFTs and you know engaging uh, you know, uh, the cyber worlds with their work. And so that that in itself will create a type of homogenization culturally in real time. And uh, like I said, the draw of that may be too strong for the youth uh, to ignore 
and and really just anybody to ignore is going to be a strong draw to participate. Oh, huh. Um, so I heard you mention the word NFT, which, of course, is uh, quite a phenomena and one which um, some understand and others like myself don't completely get. Have you done one? I haven't meant to one yet, but I, I think it's worth a try. I, I look at it I, right now, it, it's very unregulated. It's very decentralized. So that means uh, the, the contemporary art world uh, doesn't have a, a, a control mechanism or, or, or ordering system in place. Even though you do have big artists you know, who've minted NFTs, I think Damien Hurst has done quite a few uh, amongst many others, but I, what I what I think is going to happen is, you know, uh, many artists are going to look to that space as a way to get around the, uh, you know, the mechanism in their local cities. You know, because the yeah, mechanism around the mechanism in their cities. What does that mean? The mechanism, you know, like like I said, the the people who uh, curate shows, the people who put together. Uh, you know, different contests or calls for artists, you, you know what I mean? They're going to work around that, uh, you know, uh, and, and right now. Well, if you... It's a little bit like the, I don't mean to interrupt your sentence, so go right back to it, but um, it's a little bit like the way uh, music on the internet has completely changed the music industry. Right, um, right. Artists are no longer as de dependent on um, record companies and radios. Right, so it's working around the, you know, the mechanism. So, but at some point, the mechanism will engage it and regulate it. But in the meantime, you have people who are, you know, have limited uh, visual mastery engaging in it and finding some, some level of uh, success in the early pioneer phases of it. So uh, it's hard to tell what it will ultimately evolve into, but, you know, uh, it's definitely worth looking into if you can stomach it. <laughs> We've covered some territory here. Uh, I, I'm, I'm running out of time. I'm actually out of time. Uh, so I need to uh, uh, close this off. But are there any, is there a thought that you've had about what we've been talking about that you haven't shared with me that I have missed that you want to add as a closing note? Uh, basically, uh, you know, look for me. Uh, at John at John Barnes Art. Uh, you know, johnbarnesart.com is my website. Uh, you know, I'm gonna, as I, you know, I'm gonna add more blog daily footage coming up really soon. Uh, uh, yeah, uh, look for my work on Instagram, uh, johnbarnesart at instagram.com and follow me on that platform. And, you know, uh, this should be some interesting work popping off in a studio for 2022. So, uh, but, but thank you very much for inviting me to talk today, Gene, and uh, looking forward to, you know, seeing if the, you know, what the feedback is from your audience about this particular interview. Thank you on me as well. And also thank you for participating in our Give Art campaign. And hopefully you'll sell something through that as well. Oh, yes, yes, please support, definitely. Yeah. 
All right. Thank you very much. Listen, you have um, uh, what I've been trying to figure out how to get away from saying, have a nice holiday season. There's something about that term that sounds like a TV commercial and I find <laughs> television commercials about. Um, I'll accept that. I'll definitely no, accept No, but I'd rather say, I, here's what I'm saying. I'm saying, have a bright solstice season. Because oh, this is really yeah. all about this solstice and lighting up a dark time. Sounds great. Sounds great. And same to you. Thank you. You take care. And um, I'm sure we'll be talking soon. Sounds great. Take care. All right, Meryl, I'm uh, thrilled to be talking with you because um, I'm a former dancer. And uh, oh, nice. <laughs> I'm very excited about the fact that it does seem to uh, uh, that dance is having a internationally it seems to be uh i don't know it, it, it the awareness of it the performances that are happening not that they aren't always happening but right now it just seems as if there's a kind of surge you might say using one of the words we're getting accustomed to lately of of performances and um what you are doing in particular at the contemporary arts center coming up um next weekend is um really uh, exciting. And I'd like you to kind of uh, give me a little bit of a roadmap as to uh, what you're trying to do, where the idea from it came, uh, came from, and, um, you know, what you're hoping the impact of it'll be on um, folks in the audience. Sure. Um, so next weekend, we are hosting a series of um, workshops and community conversations. Um, that are free and open to the public. And uh, the workshops are a result of research that, so there's just to backtrack for a second, Reframe is um, a collective. It's an artist-led initiative. There are six uh, artists who are a part of it. We started this journey a couple years ago before the pandemic. Um, and like so many artists, um, in, in some ways, the pandemic actually was really gracious to us because we started this journey um, with the intention of two things. One, building a solo performance work um, and two, uh, movement research. So really kind of investing in our um, process in the studio and expanding that and how that could be enriched through access to space, like through time and space, essentially, and peer-to-peer -peer feedback. And so the beautiful part of the pandemic was because we already had this initiative happening that was focused on studio time and development and solo works. It, it was something that actually, after the first few months of the pandemic, after sort of everybody um, got used to the new reality, we were able to continue to work on um, when a lot of other performing arts were put on hold. And um, the CAC was really gracious, even though a lot of their programming was on hold because it was just one person entering the studio, um, were really gracious with letting us uh, continue to use studio space after the first couple of months of the pandemic. So in that sense, it was a godsend and it just meant that this whole period of process and research got expanded a lot longer because um, only just in the last couple of weeks are performances really starting up again at the Contemporary Arts Center and many other places um, in the US. 
And, um, and then of course the challenging part to it is that we've been a bit more fragmented <laughs> from each other's processes than we initially anticipated or planned because you know this situation led us all into a degree of isolation. So part of what's exciting about next weekend on a personal level for us in terms of what we initially set out to do is that it's a great opportunity for us to not only share with the community, but share with each other um, where this research has led us. And the workshops that we'll be hosting are intentionally accessible to all people. So you don't have to be a dancer um, necessarily to come and enjoy these workshops. The emphasis is very much on bringing people into dance um, and drawing relationships between dance and the world we live in, our society, our culture, our politics, our histories, um, our diversity. So um, the workshops themselves have that intention of being accessible, um, something that's useful to people who are professional dancers and to people who've maybe never taken a dance class before, um, but want to explore some aspect of what's being proposed in a certain workshop. And they also reflect our studio practice and um, research for this specific um, project that's moving towards a solo evening length work. So it's what we've been focused on in residency for the past now two years. <laughs> Give me a flavor for the evening. If, if I'm in the audience, uh, let's do it both ways. Uh, as you as a participant in the program, and then gives me a flavor for what the person in the audience is going to experience. If you had to, to kind of anticipate how somebody would describe it afterwards. Sure, um, somebody that's participating in the festival, it is an unconventional festival for dance in the sense that it's the emphasis is not on um, final dance works. So you're not necessarily showing up to a theater to see a dance performance. Um, the emphasis is on process and research and conversation integration of dance into society. So for somebody showing up um, to the festival, they have two options to show up and join a workshop where they'll um, have the opportunity to move and in some cases uh, meditate, use their voice, practice writing skills. There's a lot of like interdisciplinary um, work happening even within the workshops themselves. And they also have the opportunity to sit and listen and or participate in one of the five community conversations that's happening. And um, these community conversations also kind of bridge the research that we've been doing in the studio with work that we're doing in the community or how this research is applicable to stuff that is happening in our world today. Um, tell, so me tell, a little, tell me a little bit about the research. Sure, yeah, I mean, all of us have very different approaches. Um, I can speak the most easily about my own. <laughs> um, my uh, process is, is in collaboration with another artist, uh, Janina Orijana. And in our studio time, we've been developing a pedagogy based on our individual and joint uh, studies and research. And so we, throughout the past two years, when COVID hasn't been inhibiting, have been working in communities of women and using these tools as a form of, um, as a way to examine gender-based discrimination and gender-based violence 
and community. So our conversation that we're going to be having on um, December 18th, it's on Saturday. <laughs> Sorry, I had to think for a second there. Um, that will be exploring this idea of somatophobia, fear of the body, and which of course has been really perpetuated during COVID-19 um, and how fear of the body is embedded in our society, how it exacerbates inequality, um, both gender-based inequality as well as um, racial and cultural inequality. There's sort of an intersection of uh, an examination of colonialism as well as uh, feminism and, and gender um, studies in the work that we've been doing. It's been very focused on, yeah, accessing communities of women and female identifying. We've actually, even despite all of this weird time, managed to work with women in different parts of the world. Um, I'm actually still in Northern Greece right now where I've, Janina was also here at one point, we were working with uh, Greek women, but also refugees from Afghanistan, Syria, and Iraq um, doing this, this, you know, with this pedagogy, um, exploring these conversations of what does gender-based discrimination and violence and censorship look like? And um, yeah, I'm heading back to New Orleans in a couple of days and excited to have these conversations with my own community back home. Those have been uh, really quite, um, I would say almost traumatic uh, to experience the reaction that you got from people, especially the, um, the immigrants, the migrants who are um, trying to escape um, the difficulties in their home countries and try to find a new country to accept them. Um, I, I just can't imagine that interface had to be extremely um, emotional. There is, of course, there's emotional side of it. Um, but, you know, like it's amazing how common the issues are amongst women and every population we work with, including the United States. I think in the United States, in certain areas, at least, especially urban areas, more progressive areas, we have more access to conversation. Um, but we, we also have done this workshop in Mexico and I also worked with, um, which has, I mean, Mexico is a huge femicide rate, it's terrible. And, um, I also did this, this, these workshops in Ukraine, in Kiev, with uh, displaced people because of the war with Russia, and also um, Russian uh, LGBTQ who were seeking asylum because the homo, um, there's a lot of laws against homosexuality and LGBTQ activism in Russia, and they were not only LG, identified as LGBTQ, but also activists, so they were seeking asylum. Uh, in Ukraine. And so, you know, of course there's nuances and there are these layers of trauma that come with being displaced, that come with being a refugee. Um, but the actual like examples that come up so often when we talk about gender-based violence and discrimination, it's kind of uncanny and amazing how much all of these cultures share in common. And oh, wow. so, um, and it points to like, there's actually like a need and or a problem and a need that's still not like being uh, properly addressed. Do you feel, so, uh, I, I, it was, so you've worked in all of these different environments and again, seen similar um, issues, but um, are you seeing progress? Yeah, 
yeah, you can even just um, generationally, like the younger, the like one thing that's been neat about um, these workshops is that we've managed to access different ages, you know, women of different ages, um, as well as cultural um, backgrounds. And you certainly definitely feel a difference in the younger population where there is more dialogue happening and actually like some of the feedback we've gotten here in Greece with the particularly the Greek population is um, you know how wonderful it would be to have workshops like this because we folk like the focus of the workshops is on the body it's on somatic therapy it's on using the body you know as a tool um, both for healing and for creating agency and autonomy. Um, and the, some of the feedback we've gotten is how it would be really wonderful to offer these workshops to older women in the villages. Um, and it's really cool when we do have older women in the room, um, but it's it, that kind of seen that over and over again, that there's, there's a little bit more um, curiosity and desire amongst younger generations, which I think does point to that there is some improvement. And then the Me Too um, occurrence, I, I, I struggle a little bit. There's a lot of people who have you know, questions about whether Me Too is actually a movement or not, but Me Too definitely changed some things. And it's really interesting. It's a movement in the sense of consciousness. If not, Consciousness, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And like, it's amazing. Like, I mean, the impact in the US, of course, you could feel and, um, you know, for those of us who are already like kind of invested in this work and doing this work, it was, you know, yes, the kind of public visibility um, was amazing. But to be in these other countries where like, in to see how it's been um, adapted, and developed and actually, in some ways, even developed more in terms of collective activism in Mexico is really inspiring. And to be in Greece, I mean, they were so, um, for a while there was this feeling of like, when is Me Too gonna happen here? Like we haven't had that yet. And then in January it did. And so there's this like um, kind of rising tide around that and like a pride in it. Like now Me Too is here too. And like, we can't. Um, yeah. Yeah. There's like a wave that we can follow now, you know, and um, and that's cool. That's really cool to see. The other thing that I'm noticing in the U.S. is just how many more of my male friends identify as feminist and that like before me too, even men that were really like open and interested to having having conversations just shied away from that word or like even cringed <laughs> from that word. And now it's like way more. Um, they were like, they're like, they want to take that on. And I think that's also positive, you know, and younger, younger women too. Um, when I was teaching in grad school, like no one wanted to be called, like I, I was teaching, you know, undergrads and like, they don't really want to be associated with feminism. And then that shifted a lot. I think after 2016, I see a lot of young women wanting to, um, explore that side of themselves you know sure. yeah it's interesting because um I, I can say as an older woman but um coming out of new york and out of the um the betty Friedan days of the beginning of all of this uh in 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 new york um i didn't uh, consider myself a feminist because i i viewed myself as um exempt 
on a certain level because I was so um, proactive as a personality, let's just say. Some, some people would say that, um, uh, I think it's sometimes called um, impulse, lack of impulse control. I kind of say what I'm thinking and want to say. But uh, which brings up a point that I want to make, and then I, I want to come back to uh, my original construct and talk about your experience in doing this and performing and how it's affected uh, you. But um, I, I, I think one of the things I'm concerned about with the whole Me Too movement and how people are experiencing it <clears throat> is that the more um, uh, dramatic elements of it, um, actual physical abuse and, and um, lack of equity in a, in a broader sense, but there's a much more subtle um, experience of it. I, I was at a meeting yesterday where I kept putting out what I thought were pretty important ideas. And I, I felt like a lack of response coming in the meeting. And then somebody else sort of expressed the same thing I was saying, slightly different wording, but it was the same uh, idea in a way. And there was much more endorsement. And that was a man, it was coming from the man who was the leader in the group. And I'm saying, there's this constant sense of, uh, there's still, there's still a tendency, even in a, a very professional world and with very experienced and intelligent people to um, regard what's coming from a man in a different way of coming from a woman. So this is a subtler form of discrimination, but I live with it. I express this is where this is where I live and experience um, the, the Me Too uh, framework more than any, any anything else is, is not in the no one's going to really abuse me unless I'm like caught on the street and I with somebody with a gun. I mean, it's really hard to, to push me where I want to go. But um, the subtle things that happen in my professional life are as debilitating in a way as. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And that's part of um, our approach, you know, is that that me too, again, a lot of good things came from it, but it was so focused on um, it, it became very much about like what's happening in the legal world, you know, like how, how are these people being held accountable. Um, and, and yet there's so many like, um, layers to even getting to that point, you know, and which is not to say, yes, of course, it's like, we need to refine how our legal system is, you know, responding to, um, you know, rape and assault within, you know, power dynamics and, you know, workplace environments, but there's layers of like education that's not happening, um, that, that that like yeah um ex like expands into every aspect of our life our work life our relations um the way we speak and communicate one of the biggest like focuses of our um approach to this work again being through the body is to strengthen woman's relationship with her intuition because and so there's so many aspects of our society that actually cut us off from our intuition and um you know there's such an emphasis on reason and logic and pull us away from gut instinct and um something that is irrational that can't really be explained but you just sort of know in your, your that it's true and and that's a huge that that little voice inside a woman is is a huge tool in terms of consent and safety and protection and so really learning how to like um trust Rebuild trust with that relationship is super important. Yeah, there's a tendency to denigrate is even the word I would go. To. 
uh, the idea of intuition. And intuition to me um, is a word that covers a lot of how uh, we perceive and how our, our, our conscious and unconscious uh, works with that information and informs us. And, and I've had many moments of, of kind of a real um, uh, perception of things that are coming from my unconscious that are really uh, uh, kind of a uh, coordination of the information that's coming to me. And an idea comes out of it and I'll say, wow, that just came straight out of my unconscious. That was not something that I arrived at in a rational process and, and, and it, it reminds me how important that is. And, you know, guys who don't acknowledge that, they're, they're cheating themselves really. Let, yeah. let me go to your experience because I don't, uh, we're gonna start running out of time. You know. <laughs> I understand your experience because we could go on forever on this, couldn't we? But um, yes. I, I wanna understand again, the experience of your performers and the people who are leading these workshops. And this is a unique idea. And I want my audience that probably is not used to thinking about this kind of a uh, event and more, as you said, a performance. Um, but but this is something that um, uh, is coming from your experience as a dancer and a performer and, and a connection with your body in many ways, uh, but uh, taking you uh, to this place where you help people think about um, uh, how how their their body uh, is a uh, a home, let's say, for this dialogue. Yes. Yes, exactly. That's a beautiful way of stating it. Um, you know, we want people to be invited into our process. I think a lot of times people see a performance, especially a dance performance, because there's an aspect of dance. The One of what makes it so unique and beautiful is its abstraction, its poeticism. But I think people often are curious, like, well, how did they arrive at that? Or how did they come to that? Or what? how did they make that? And, um, and so this is also an opportunity for people to step into that window and um, explore some of what we're exploring in our bodies in the workshops with us to explore some of these ideas in the conversations with us um, to become more of an active or interactive participant in the process and the research rather than just a consumer of the final you know, version of uh, solo work, because these have also become so much larger than solo works, because so much of our process has been delighted, right. so given to, you know, this time of research and development. Um, and so, yeah, there's, there's a lot of rich material um, for the body to process, for the mind to process, for the emotional body to process. Um, next weekend. It's, it's going to be really um, fascinating. And many of us are also, you know, there's a degree of like societal, um, like a question, like questioning aspects of society. I mean, obviously we just went off on a tangent about gender discrimination. It's very real. It's very present. Um, there's a lot of ancestor work happening amongst the cohort, colonial uh, racism, um, you know, examinations of these, these aspects of our, our world, the environment. Um, so different members of the cohort are addressing some of these different bigger topics that have like also blown up in the past year. I mean, we've seen all these forest fires and um, these, you know, uh, protests around the brutality of the police towards the African-American experience. Um, so there's, there's so much uh, the refugee population in the world is 
been exacerbated. The domestic violence rate has been exacerbated. Like there's just a lot happening in the past two years that I think that was happening in the global pandemic made us like so much more aware of. And um, part of this process for us has been like, how do we as dancers like not only respond to this, but like engage with this, you know, engage with the world around us. Yeah, and um, I, I think uh, sometimes um, we, we understand things better through art forms than we do through um, more structured institutional um, processes. And right now, I think the, the whole world is really, has not grappled with the issue of migration anywhere near the way we need to in order to get our arms around something that makes sense for it the interaction between um, the uh, uh, older and more well-established um, countries and the ones that are uh, still in a birthing process. Really, birthing is always um, a little bit traumatic. Um, I am really excited about this and looking forward to it. And I, I really hope a lot of people who maybe, again, have been only consumers of dance and and or are, are intimidated by it and don't see it and go to see it because they uh, don't feel that they really have the tools to uh, understand it um, will we'll come to the Contemporary Art Center. Give me the schedule. Okay, yeah, so it's December um, 15th, sorry, 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 December 16th, 17th, and 18th, and it's actually going to be between two venues, the Contemporary Art Center and Boberg Theater. They're both in the CBD. They're just a few blocks apart from one another. And um, we're also really excited about that, just to kind of bring dance to the CBD. There's actually going to be a second line on um, December 17th at 8.15 p.m., where we're going to, like, dance uh, through the CBD, which we're really excited about. There's going to be some great musicians there. And... Um, each night there's some kind of event too. The first night is an opening reception. December 17th, there's gonna be a screening of dance films made by different members of the community. And on December 18th, we're gonna close the festival with like a big, big dance party that will be DJed by one of the Reframe uh, cohort members and Glaviano um, who does Heat Wave. So I'm sure many people have been to the Heat Wave party. Um, and then, yeah, during the 16th, 17th, and 18th, we will have um, workshops and community conversations. They're all free and open to the public. Um, just kind of off the top of my head, there's a workshop that involves like the dance floor and processing grief and our and connecting to our ancestors through um, the dance floor and like what is that uh, lineage. There's also um, a workshop that. Uh, is for um, like invest in humor and pleasure and um, explores this idea of like what it means to be um, sexual and messy and silly and funny like all at the same time. Um, there's a workshop on dread and like how dread affects our lives and is it possible to like get rid of dread? Like can we do away with it? So there's a lot of like interesting and unique workshops happening that are very much 
beyond the normal dance class repertoire. So I think it sounds fascinating. I really do. I'm I'm excited and and um, looking forward to it. And um, I, I encourage everybody to go to the CAC um, website to um, see visually what we've been discussing in, in detail so you can um, get a better picture of it and, and plan. To, you don't have to go to everything, go to part of it, you know, just, just plug in, check it out. So this is Jean Nathan for Crosstown Conversations and um, we'll visit next week again, but get to the CAC next weekend too. Thank you, Meryl. Thank you.